Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, and I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. A lot of challenging names in this chapter. We'll do our best. Genesis chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Holy Scripture says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim, these kings made, more, made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shmeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Sheva Kiriathaim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness and they turned back and came to en- en- Mishpat, that is Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Honor. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, 
I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. This is God's word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to understand your words and to be transformed by them and strengthened by them so that we might walk faithfully with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 14 is quite obviously about kings. The words king and kings occur more than 25 times in these 24 verses in which 10 kings are identified. Nine of the 10 kings are involved in war, four kings against five, and after the battlefield is cleared, a 10th king arises who, as it turns out, is the most important of the 10 kings. Of course, the reason why chapter 14 is relevant to the narrative about Abram is because Abram is made to care about this war between kings. The reason he is made to care about it is because his nephew Lot, who in chapter 13 had separated from Abram and had journeyed east and had ended up dwelling in Sodom, uh, so the city of Sodom where Lot came to dwell was obviously involved in this war between kings and in due course Lot became a prisoner of war. Now Abram had to act, not because he wanted to meddle in a conflict between pagan kings, but in order to rescue his nephew. As the chapter begins, we're introduced to a geopolitical and military conflict in the Middle East. The four kings mentioned in verse 1 were from Mesopotamia. Shinar is in Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. Elisar is probably also in Babylonia. Elam was to the east of Babylonia. That would be modern-day Iran. It's, it's more difficult to pin down the location of Goyim, but basically you have a Mesopotami Mesopotamian alliance of four kings with King Cador Laomer of Elam clearly functioning as the head because in verses 5 and 17 we hear the phrase Cador Laomer and the kings who were with him. So he was, a, he was the head. Now since Abram was from Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, he would have been familiar with these eastern kingdoms. And the Mesopotamian alliance sought to dominate land that was several hundred miles to its west. The five kings mentioned in verse 2 were from the cities of the Jordan Valley that we learned about in chapter 13. Remember that phrase, the cities of the valley? Among them, Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar, uh, which is actually referred to as Bela in chapter 14. And then other, the other two cities mentioned are Adma and Zeboim. All of these cities were in close proximity to one another and to the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea uh, near the eastern edge of the land of Canaan. So uh, these five cities ended up in what we might call the Jordan Valley Alliance. So the Mesopotamian uh, alliance in the east, verse 1, was bearing down on the Jordan Valley Alliance in the west, 
the four eastern kings made war with the five western kings, and for their part, the five western kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim. Now, verse 4 tells us that the five cities of the Jordan Valley had been in subjection to King Cater Laomer of Elam for 12 years. That's a long time. But after 12 years, they decided to rebel. The early stages of the rebellion probably meant that they refused to pay tribute or taxes or honor or obedience to the king of Elam, but eventually this rebellion would lead to the battlefield. But before the Mesopotamian alliance and the Jordan Valley alliance met on the battlefield, the Mesopotamian kings swept down and defeated a number of other cities in the Syrian, Jordanian, and Canaanite regions, as we see in verses 5 to 7. And the point is that the Mesopotamian alliance was dominating the region around the cities of the valley. What chance did the Jordanian Valley Alliance have against this regional superpower? Nevertheless, the five western kings from Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela made their move and joined battle in the valley of Sidim in verse 8 against the four eastern kings. Four kings against five. As it happened, and not surprisingly, the Mesopotamian kings won the victory and ended up plundering the city of Sodom, taking away all of their possessions and provisions. Now, except for one detail, the report of this war may have been relegated to the annals of Mesopotamian or Middle Eastern history, and it would have never made its way into the Bible. But details matter, and the consequential detail is that the Mesopotamian alliance took Abram's nephew Lot as a prisoner of war, and now that meant that Abram had a horse in the race. As we come to verse 13, we learn that Abram was still living by the oaks of Mamre, the place near Hebron, where he had settled at the end of chapter 13. Mamre is the name of a person, or named after a person, Mamre the Amorite, Remember, Mamre's people, the Amorites, had been defeated by the Mesopotamian alliance in verse 7. Mamre had two brothers, Eskel and Honor. As Amorites, these three brothers were descendants of Canaan, the cursed son of Ham. Even so, these three, uh, these three brothers were allies of Abram. And you, you can learn a little lesson there. Sometimes you will discover allies in unexpected places or among unexpected groups of people. Do not despise the allies that God sends your way. You might even be instrumental in their conversion. Now, continuing with the storyline here, one who had escaped from the battle of verses 8 to 12 came and told Abram, that Lot had been taken captive. And so facing the circumstance of a family member in crisis, Abram proved to be a man of action. He led 318 of his own trained men to pursue the enemy that had plundered Sodom and captured his nephew. Of course, Lot wasn't the only prisoner of war. As the end of verse 16 makes clear, there were a number of other prisoners of war from 
Sodom. Abram and his fighting force pursued the Mesopotamian army as far as Dan. That's over 150 miles to the north of Hebron. From there, Abram divided his forces by night, verse 15, thus enabling his fighting force to attack from two directions. Abram's men defeated the Mesopotamian army and pursued them north of Damascus, north of Damascus, which would be at least another 50 or 60 miles to the northeast of Dan. So a- Abram had quite a, quite a, a bit of uh, travel involved in this military exposition. Of course, Abram had no militaristic or geopolitical ambitions. He simply wanted to rescue Lot and recover Lot's possessions. Nevertheless, the entire city of Sodom benefited from Abram's action. It says, in, it says that then he brought back all the possessions, that is, all the possessions of Sodom that had been taken in verse 11, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. As the account comes to a close, um, in verses 18 to 20, we meet Melchizedek, who, who seems to come out of nowhere in order to uh, bless Abram. And, and the, the account of Melchizedek is, is sandwiched right in between references to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom came out to, to greet Abram and ended up offering uh, offering uh, Abram to keep all the spoils of war but Abram refused and was determined to take nothing for himself. So that's kind of the the big picture of what unfolds in chapter 14, and I want to draw out four lessons for us, some more important than others, but let's just walk through them. Lesson number one, the effects of the fall are now seen in geopolitical conflicts. We may assume that there was clan against clan or people group against people group happening before Genesis chapter 14. But Genesis chapter 14 is the first time that such conflict is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Before Genesis chapter 14, in Genesis chapter 6 and in Genesis chapter 11, humanity is, is unified in rebellion against the Lord and in wickedness. But it was only a matter of time before the brother-against-brother conflict in Genesis chapter 4 was magnified into geopolitical conflict between clans and tribes and nations. And so the conflict between the Mesopotamian alliance and the Jordan Valley alliance gives us a first glimpse of large-scale conflict that will recur throughout history in the Middle East and throughout the world, such as we now see in the bitter conflict between Russia and Ukraine. There is nothing, nothing new under the sun. Lesson number two, God shows undeserved kindness to the sinners of Sodom. I think this is an especially important lesson. One of the most striking features of Genesis chapter 14 is that Sodom gets a new lease on life. may not last very long, but nevertheless, it is what it is. In chapter 13, verse 13, we learned that the men of Sodom were wicked, great 
sinners against the Lord. And we know from Genesis 13, verse 10, that the Lord was eventually going to destroy Sodom. So when we read in Genesis chapter 14 that Sodom came up short on the battlefield and had its possessions and provisions plundered and many of its people were taken as prisoners of war, as we're reading along through Genesis 13 and 14, we might have assumed that this was the end of the road for Sodom, that this was the Lord working through the, the eastern kingdoms in order to bring, to, to deal a death blow to Sodom. Remarkably, though, the wicked city is physically resuscitated. Abram, with no loyalty to Sodom, but with love for his nephew, not only brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, but returned all of Sodom's possessions along with their people who had been taken captive. Abram's successful military operation was not something that he achieved by his own wit and strength, but rather came about because, verse 20, God Most High had delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. Just think about this. The city of Sodom did not deserve to have its people and possessions restored. When a city or a nation or some other group is outwardly blessed with prosperity or with restoration. This does not necessarily mean that the Lord is pleased with that city or nation or group. The Lord was not pleased with Sodom. It was a wicked city. However, the Lord was pleased with Abram, and the, Lot, and the Lord had a compassionate eye on Lot. And sometimes the wicked treated far better than they deserve to be treated simply because the Lord's blessing upon the righteous overflows to the wicked. Another part of this lesson is that the Lord has appointed times for judgment. And his appointed time for the judgment of Sodom was not yet. Not until Genesis chapter 19. From a human perspective, any time that God's judgment is deserved but delayed. This is a demonstration of God's kindness that should lead the wicked to repentance. The Apostle Paul taught us in Romans chapter 2, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. I'm sure that Sodom was glad to get its people and possessions back. But instead of humbling themselves under God's sovereign hand and thanking him for his abundant mercies and resolving to put away their wickedness, they only used this new lease on life to keep on sinning. The Lord is not amused. He will render to each one according to his works. Romans 2.6. Lesson number three, Abram preserves his independence from a wicked king. In verse 21, the king of Sodom told Abram to keep the recovered possessions for himself, keep all the spoils. 
But Abram refused, saying in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, he's speaking to the king of Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Abram was content to let his trained men and his three allies have their share for a laborer is worthy of his wages, including the temporary participants in a military expedition force. They're worthy of their wages. But Abram was unwilling to benefit personally and financially from his rescue operation. Why? Well, the obvious reason for Abram's refusal of compensation is the simple fact that he had vowed to the Lord that he would not take any of Sodom's possessions for himself. A person is under no obligation to make vows to the Lord. But if a person does make a vow to the Lord, then he or she should be careful to perform it. When you make a vow to God, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 4 and 5. But the fact of Abram's vow just pushes the question back a step. Why did Abram make this vow not to take any of Sodom's possessions for himself? It's not, it's not as if Abram was unwilling to be enriched by a pagan king. Remember when Abram went down to Egypt in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10? He was greatly enriched by Pharaoh, as we learn in Genesis 12, 16. Why was Abram willing to be enriched by pagan Pharaoh, but not willing to be enriched by the pagan king of Sodom. I would suggest, and it's only a suggestion, I would suggest that Abram didn't want to benefit financially from the king of Sodom because Sodom was exceedingly wicked. In terms of his public testimony, he did not want the king who presided over this exceedingly wicked city to be able to say, I have made Abram rich. Abram didn't want to appear to be indebted to a wicked king. Moreover, Abram didn't want to give the impression that he was in league with the city of Sodom. After all, there was a very real sense in which Abram had just saved the city. And in this unique circumstance, he wanted to be careful to preserve his independence from Sodom. Abram was not a partner of Sodom and did not want to be seen as such. Besides, Abram was already very rich, as it says in Genesis 13 too. So why give an especially wicked king any plausible basis for thinking and saying that I have made Abram rich? Abram wanted to make it very clear in this particular circumstance that he was indebted to the Lord and not to the king of Sodom. Abram wanted to make it very clear that he was indebted to the creator of heaven and earth, not to the corrupt king of a wicked city. Now, those are the first three lessons. The fourth lesson is the most important one. 
So this is where we're gonna we're gonna plan ourselves for the rest of the message. Here's lesson number four. Melchizedek is superior to the other kings. He outranks Abram and he previews the Messiah. The, the way that God sovereignly orchestrates events is truly remarkable. From a human perspective, if Lot had never made the foolish decision to settle in Sodom, then Abram would have never been involved in this military operation against the Mesopotamian alliance. And if Abram hadn't been involved in this military operation, then it would seem to us that Genesis chapter 14 would have never been written. And yet, God oversees every movement and development on the world stage. Every breath, every life, every dynamic, every moment is in His sovereign hand, and He never fails to accomplish His overarching purpose. And part of God's overarching purpose is that in and through the events of chapter 14, He would reveal Melchizedek to everyone who would ever read the book of Genesis. Because Melchizedek stands alone as the picture of a perfect priest and only a perfect priest can mediate salvation to a sin-sick world. And so, by God's providential design, this is one of those things where you say, you just can't make this stuff up. By God's providential design, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, is Melchizedek's moment to shine. Noah got four chapters, Genesis 6 to 9. Abram gets 14 chapters. Melchizedek, greater than both Noah and Abram, gets three verses in one chapter but his outsized significance will be recognized by King David in Psalm 110 and will eventually be unpacked in depth in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So let's slow down and make several observations about the excellence of Melchizedek. First, Melchizedek is set apart. He is set apart from the other nine kings who are identified in chapter 14. He is set apart from the six people groups in verses 5 to 7 and the five cities of the valley, the five cities of the valley in verse 2, that were defeated by the Mesopotamian powers. Melchizedek was not entangled in these conflicts. Although these geopolitical and military conflicts took place in his backyard, he somehow managed to remain above the fray. Melchizedek is set apart, and he presides over a city that is set apart. Second, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek's name derives from two words. Melch derives from the word that means king. Zedek derives from the word that means righteousness. So the name Melchizedek means my king is righteous or king of righteousness. Third, Melchizedek is the king of peace. Whereas king of righteousness was tied to his name, king of peace is tied to the name of his city, Salem. Salem means peaceful. And thus Melchizedek presided over the peaceful city, the city of peace. 
fourth, Melchizedek serves a celebratory meal of bread and wine. If I'm not mistaken, and I might be, I didn't go back and carefully read through the first 13 chapters, so if, if you know better, please, please correct me on this. But if I'm not mistaken, this is the first recorded instance of a wholesome meal in the Bible. Food, of course, is regarded positively in chapters 1, 6, and 9, and no doubt human beings were eating and drinking with great regularity and enjoying doing so, but the first recorded act of eating in the Bible is the consumption of the forbidden fruit in Genesis 3, 6, and the first recorded act of drinking in the Bible is the excessive consumption of wine that led to Noah's drunkenness in Genesis 9:21. Finally, after 13 chapters, we have the fruit of the earth and the fruit of the vine set before Abram, and we have every reason to believe that they ate and drank to the glory of God. Fifth, Melchizedek is priest of God Most High. Whereas a king rules on God's behalf, a priest offers sacrifices to God. A king presides from the throne room in the palace, but a priest presides at the altar in the temple. A priest mediates fellowship between God and human beings, invites people to eat and drink in the presence of God, and pronounces God's blessing upon God's people. The remarkable thing about Melchizedek is that he is both priest and, and king. He's a priest king. In the wisdom of God, God would separate the kingly throne from the priestly altar throughout the history of Israel. King Saul got in trouble precisely because he overstepped his bounds and offered a priestly sacrifice that was not lawful for the king to make. And King Uzziah fell into the same trap. The kings of Israel were expected to sit on the royal throne, but they were not permitted to officiate at the altar. The separation of throne and altar is necessary when you're dealing with sinful people who don't know how to handle power. But God's ultimate plan involves the union of throne and altar. The ideal king is also priest. The ideal priest is also king. Psalm 110 reveals that God's plan is for the Messiah who sits at God's right hand to rule as king in the midst of his enemies, verse 2, and to serve as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, verse 4. Sixth, as priest of God Most High, Melchizedek is in a position to pronounce the blessing of God upon Abram. As we've been reading the previous two chapters in Genesis, we know that the Lord told Abram at the beginning of chapter 12, I will bless you. And as we read on from chapter 12, it's very evident that God's blessing, favor, and protection is upon Abram, even when he goes down into Egypt and acts foolishly. And now it is Melchizedek, the priest king's privilege to pronounce a priestly blessing upon Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your 
hand. Melchizedek understood that God is sovereign over heaven and earth and that God rules over the affairs of men. Melchizedek understood that it is God's prerogative to bless and that it is God's prerogative to ordain victory or to ordain defeat. And since Melchizedek was a priest of God, God made sure that Melchizedek knew about God's plan to bless Abram. And God made sure that Melchizedek understood that the defeat of Kedar Lammer and the kings who were with him was not a chance happening, but that God himself had delivered the enemy into Abram's hand. Melchizedek discerned the will and the working of God, and he was able to faithfully represent that to Abram. Seventh, Melchizedek is worthy of tribute. Abram understood that this priest king who had blessed him was no ordinary man. Abram understood that it was fitting to give a tenth, a tithe, 10% of everything to Melchizedek since Melchizedek was a holy and set apart and faithful representative and priest of the Most High God. Eighth. Now, for this eighth one, you've got to put on your thinking cap. It's going to Stretch your brain a little bit. You'll probably have to go back and read Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews chapter 5 to 7. But Melchizedek transcends the genealogical categories. If you have not been with me for two important sermons on genealogies earlier in the book of Genesis, then you may not fully understand the importance of this point. But bear with me. The Lord saw to it that Melchizedek's grand entrance onto the world stage in Genesis chapter 14 was described in a way that would tell us the truth about the Messiah. What we have learned so far in the book of Genesis is that the promised Messiah is going to be the offspring of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, through the genealogical line that unfolds through Seth and his descendants in Genesis chapter 5, and then on through Shem and his descendants in Genesis chapter 11, and then in, eventually through Abram and Isaac and Jacob and Judah, and eventually through David. And so when the New Testament begins, says Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For this reason, I have made it a point to highlight the importance of the genealogies in Genesis chapters 5 and 11 because this is the genealogical line that will lead to Messiah, the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The recounting of the other genealogical lines, do you remember? They fizzle out. As far as the book of Genesis is concerned, the, the recounting of Cain's line fizzles out in Genesis chapter 4. The recounting of Japheth's descendants and Ham's descendants fizzle out in Genesis chapter 10. The recounting of Ishmael's descendants will fizzle out in Genesis chapter 25. And the recounting of Esau's descendants will fizzle out in Genesis chapter 36. Here's the point. In the book of Genesis, if you have a really important role to play, you are part of the genealogical line that leads to the Messiah. And there's another thing about the Messiah's genealogical line that stands out in the book of Genesis. 
we know how old people were when they died. Over and over again. So if you have a really important role to play in the book of Genesis, it's because you're part of the genealogical line that leads to the Messiah, and we know how old you were when you died. For example, Noah lived 950 years. Shem, 600 years. Abraham, 175 years. Jacob, 147 years. All, all of them. From Adam to Jacob, we, we know how long they lived and when they died. If you have a really important role to play in the book of Genesis, it's because you are part of the genealogical line leading to the Messiah, except for Melchizedek. If you have a really important role to play in the book of Genesis, we know how old you were when you died, except for Melchizedek. Don Carson, one of my favorite teachers, professors, authors, he preached a sermon entitled, getting excited about Melchizedek. You really should. Melchizedek transcends genealogical categories. He, he seems to come out of nowhere. We have no record of his father and mother. We have no record of his physical lineage. We have no record of how old his father was when he was born. We have no record of how old Melchizedek, Melchizedek was when he died. And all of this is by God's design. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. The priesthood of Melchizedek was not tied to physical lineage or bodily descent. Instead, the priesthood of Melchizedek testifies to the reality of a priest who lives and never dies and who therefore continues as a priest forever. When we read these three verses about Melchizedek, the priest king in Genesis chapter 14, we're supposed to see a preview of the high priesthood of Jesus. You see, with respect to Jesus inheriting the throne of his father David, that came about through physical lineage, the incarnate Son, the Word made flesh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He descended from David according to the flesh, Romans 1.3. But with respect to Jesus being the great high priest who made sacrifice for sin, he did not descend from the priestly line of Levi. He did not descend from Aaron, Israel's first high priest, Jesus was not appointed a priest according to the order of Aaron. Instead, he was appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, an independent and majestic and special and divinely ordained priestly order that is characterized by the power of an indestructible life. And that's why Melchizedek is in Genesis chapter 14. The Most High God appointed the man Melchizedek to a priestly role in order to establish a precedent and, and, and offer a preview of the high priesthood of the Son of God. We must see Melchizedek as a window into the glory of God's Son. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is set apart from other kings. Other kings are jockeying for position and duking it out on the battlefield. They're eager to be served. By contrast, Jesus stood among us as one who serves, as one who did not crave earthly glory, 
as one who is totally devoted to the Father's will. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is the king of righteousness. The problem with one king after another and one president after another is the absence of righteousness. But unlike these other kings, Scripture says concerning God's Son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hebrews 1.9 Like Melchizedek, Jesus is the King of Peace. The multitude declared at His birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Luke 2.14 Before His death, Jesus declared, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 20. And by his death he destroyed our adversary, the devil. Hebrews 2, 14. Like Melchizedek, Jesus serves a celebratory meal of bread and wine. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blessed, blessed is everyone. Blessed is everyone who in faith partakes of this holy meal. And blessed is the Most High God who has delivered us from our greatest enemies, sin and death. Like Melchizedek, Jesus mediates blessing to those who, like Abram, are chosen of God. It says in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood is not tied to physical lineage, and like Melchizedek, Jesus is worthy of tribute. But unlike Melchizedek, a tenth of everything is too small an offering to give to our great high priest who is also the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is worthy of everything. For his sake, Paul wrote, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, his indestructible life, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, 8 to 11. One of the best ways to apply what we have learned about Melchizedek and how Melchizedek is a window into the excellence of God's Son. One of the best ways to apply that is to lift up your voice and to sing with all your heart about the excellence of Jesus, our priest king, 
who alone mediates salvation to a sin-sick world. And this final song that we're going to sing has been chosen specifically in order to do that, to praise the excellence of the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how Scripture reveals the glory of Christ to us. And Father, I pray that we would not chase after salvation, deliverance, healing, comfort, joy in all the wrong places. I pray that we would receive the fruit of the earth, the fruit of the vine, the love of God, the blood of the cross through our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.